Greetings, welcome back to These Are The Words. I'm Eric Grun, and we are going to continue with the book written by C.L. Schaefer, False Beliefs. The music I'm about to play is called Triptology. Triptology, High Vibes, Music Mix, Side Dub, Ethnic Chill, Ethnic Chill Out, World Tribal, Side, side Chill, Dub, Entheogenic. <laughs> uh. Cool music, but long titles. All right, Chapter Six. The flood and the biblical text that keeps getting in the way. The Kenite myth supporter is bound to two beliefs. Number one, Cain came from Satan. Number two, Satan's physical children are still among us today. Due to these two beliefs, Supporters must find a way to get Cain's descendants past the flood by means other than through Seth's line. What stands in their way is the biblical text. Luke chapter 17 verses 26 through 27, 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 20, and 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 5 all record how only Noah and his family survived the flood. Supporters attempt to explain this away by claiming the word flesh, quote-unquote, in the verse, quote, and of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shall thou, shalt thou bring into the ark. Close quote. Actually means human being. The claim is that that actually means human being. That quote is about human being. <laughs> Therefore, to them, this means God was taking two of every sort of human being. Parentheses, in other words, hybrid or race. In providing this definition of the word flesh, the Hebrew word basar, supporters conveniently use only a portion of it. The word flesh can mean a person, as in a human being, but it can also mean a body, as in the body of an animal. See Numbers chapter 11 verses 4 through 6, where flesh, basar, clearly means animals, not human beings. Therefore, this pointing to a concordance for the word flesh gets supporters nowhere, since flesh, in the context of Genesis 6.19, refers to animals and not human beings, due to the overall biblical context of Luke chapter 17 verses 26 through 27, 1 Peter 3:20 and 2 Peter 2:5. Even if supporters want to believe in their own commentary and argue that the word flesh is referring to other races and hybrids, we soon run into another difficulty. By claiming these hybrids boarded the ark, supporters have just burdened themselves with having to answer why God would destroy all the unrighteous while giving a couple of Satan juniors two tickets to the ark. <laughs> Some must have seen a problem with this, for they provide a less direct way of getting Satan's supposed children past the flood. 
Some claim the waters did not cover the entire earth. These individuals, along with some outside the Kenite myth, argue that earth means just the Mideast Mediterranean regions since Moses, the writer of Genesis, was probably only aware of this area. Due to this, the land beyond this point was not flooded. The Hebrew word Eretz does translate to earth and can mean part of the land, but it can also mean the entire earth. Again, looking at the Hebrew language is not a silver bullet. It gets us nowhere since both sides will follow the definition that fits their beliefs. The bigger issue, however, in believing that the flood was just a regional flood is due to the other regional floods we've had after the time of Noah, particularly in the Middle East. In other words, if God meant in his that he would never send another regional flood again, then he has failed in keeping that promise. Furthermore, if we are to assume that the Kenites survived because they were living in an area that was not flooded, then we have just returned to our previous difficulty of why God would allow Satan's physical children to continue to live in the unflooded areas while others perished. This theory again ends up portraying, portraying God as being unjust. The theory also conflicts with supporters' reason for why there was a flood in the first place, which as we will see later, was because God supposedly wanted to kill all hybrids. Supporters attempt to modify the Genesis flood story. The Bible warns us not to do this. Convincing people, however, of this version of events is vital to those who keep to the Kenite myth. If we choose not to accept it, but instead decide to follow the true biblical account, where everyone perishes except Noah and his family, then the result becomes a history in which we are all related and are in the same family line of Adam, Seth, and Noah. Look who's coming to dinner. As previously illustrated, the Kenite myth is shown to be false before it even gets off the ground. But further problems are found when we read about the actual Kenites within the biblical text. One of the first difficulties we encounter with this myth is that Moses married Zipporah, who was from the Kenite tribe. If we believe Satan's children were the Kenites, then one would expect God to punish Moses for marrying into such a tribe. But there is no indication God punished Moses for doing so. Some have attempted to explain this away by claiming Moses' father-in-law, Ruel, and his family were not Kenites, but were simply living in the land of the Kenites. According to these individuals, this was why Ruel was called a Kenite, just as those who move to America can become American citizens. Ruel was called a Kenite because he resided in Kenite territory. The Bible, however, 
does not record that Ruel was merely a resident of Kenite land. In fact, if the Kenites were of Satan, then one would expect the text to provide this all-important detail that Moses' in-laws were not Kenites, but were from the region of the Kenites. However, this detail is nowhere to be found. To gain some textual evidence, apparently, some have tried to use one of the definitions for the Hebrew word for children in Judges 1.16 to claim the text is telling us Moses' in-laws were only residents of Kenite territory. Quote, and the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up out of the city of palm trees with the children of Judah. Close quote. The word children in this verse, which is ben, can mean subject, as in being a subject of a particular country. But it can also mean son, as in an actual biological child. It can also mean both, since an individual, for example, can be a Kenite and a resident of Kenite land. This becomes a draw. However, the Hebrew language once again does not help us out here. To break the tie, all we need to do is read the context in which this verse is found, and it becomes obvious that the text is telling us these children are the actual offspring of Moses' father-in-law, the Kenite. Judges 1.16 has nothing to do with subjects and countries and the like. This verse reads the children of the Kenite, Moses, Moses' father-in-law. It does not say the children of the land of the Kenites. Clearly, we are to understand that Moses' father-in-law was a Kenite, and therefore, so were his children. By the way, I believe <laughs> the land of the Kenites is currently modern Ethiopia, if I'm not mistaken. I believe uh, Moses married an Ethiopian woman. Um, of Satan is kind of ridiculous. It's, it's really ridiculous. Okay, so no biblical evidence exists to support the notion that Moses-in-laws were only residents of the land of the Kenites. However, textual proof does not exist that Moses' in-laws were inhabitants of Midian. When Moses fled Egypt, he went and dwelt in the land of Midian. This is where Moses met Ruel and his family. The family was not residing in the land of the Kenites. They were in Midian. When Moses was called by God to return to Egypt, Moses was still in Midian. The text reads, And the Lord said unto Moses in Midian, The text does not indicate that Ruel and his family were living in the land of the Kenites before or after they met Moses. The Bible only tells us they were residents of Midian. Another argument that supporters use to suggest Ruel, Ruel and his family were not actual Kenites is to point to the first few verses in Exodus 18. Here, the Bible tells us that the firstborn son of Moses and Zipporah was named Gershom or Gershom. This son's name in Hebrew means refugee, and the text says Gershom was named this because the person naming him was an alien in a strange land. The pronoun he used in Exodus 18.3 makes it rather ambiguous as to whether it was Ruel or Moses who named Gershom. Supporters contend Ruel named Moses' son Gershom. For them, this implies Ruel did so because he was a Midianite living in Kenite land, a strange land. 
To discover who actually named Moses' son, we turn to Exodus 2, verses 21 through 22. Here, we find a clearer picture of who carried out this task. Quote, And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses, Zipporah, his daughter. And she bare him a son. And he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. Zipporah did not bear a son for her father. Therefore, the him in this verse is Moses, whom Zipporah bore a son for. And it was Moses who called his son Gershom. It becomes even more evident who named Gershom when we consider the broader context. Moses' home was Egypt until he fled it, escaped to Midian, and met Zipporah and her family. At that point, Moses became a stranger in a strange land. This is why he named his child Gershom. Due to this larger context, we can draw the conclusion that Moses named his son, not Ruel. Furthermore, it would... <laughs> Furthermore, it would have been rather odd for a father, Moses, not to be the one naming his firstborn son. In the end, the argument that the biblical text refers to Ruel and his family as merely residents of Kenite land has no textual backing. Another approach supporters take to explain away the fact that the Bible describes Moses' father-in-law, Ruel, as a Kenite is by way of Ruel's occupation. <laughs> According to Exodus 18.1, Ruel was a Midianite priest. Ruel was from the line of the Midianites that descended from Abraham and Keturah. However, Ruel was not an Israelite. Through Abraham and Sarah came Isaac, whose name, whose son was Jacob, whose offspring eventually comprised the tribes of Israel. The children of Keturah were not a part of this line. Nevertheless, supporters assert that because Ruel was from Abraham, somehow he and his other descendants followed a kind of pre-covenantal priesthood like that of Melchizedek, whereby they too could not intermarry with other people groups. By this, they attempt to claim that Ruel could not have been a Midianite and a Canaan and a Kenite. This is fiction. God established the priesthood through Aaron, following the exodus from Egypt. After the flood, the idea of not intermarrying with unbelievers was again in the hearts and minds of Abraham and Isaac, as demonstrated in Genesis chapter 24 and chapter 27, verses 46 through chapter 28, verses 1 through 9. However, it was not until the time of Aaron that God officially and specifically commanded the priests not to intermarry with other people groups due to these groups following other gods. This decree had nothing to do with Moses' father-in-law. Ruel was a priest, but he was a pagan priest who probably had some knowledge of the God of Abraham due to his ancestors. Through the years, however, these ancestors became corrupted by pagan practices. In Numbers 25, evidence can be found of the Midianites following pagan gods, the same as the Moabites. 
Numbers 31 provides the account of God's punishment against the Midianites for corrupting the Israelites with pagan beliefs. Clearly, Ruel was ignorant or his conscience was free of any sense that intermarriage with pagans was wrong since he himself was a pagan. We see evidence of this pagan corruption in Ruel's own words when he greeted Moses in the wilderness after the Israelites' exodus. Ruel said, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. For in the thing wherein they they dealt proudly, he was above them. Ruel was the follower of many gods, but it was not until this moment that he realized the God of Abraham is the one true God. In other words, Ruel became a convert, and because Ruel had been a pagan priest, his father was probably a pagan as well. Therefore, Ruel's father would have felt no obligation to marry within his own people, and would have produced a child that had a dual ancestry with both the Kenites and the Midianites. As a side note, Numbers 12 tells us that the Mo- um, that Moses married an Ethiopian or Cushite woman. Oh, okay, this is uh, that says this could be describing Zipporah or another woman Moses married after Zipporah died. Okay, Okay. yeah, this is where Moses marries an Ethiopian woman. And it says here, it could be Zipporah or it could be somebody that uh, after Zipporah died that Moses married. Okay, the text is not entirely clear. However, if it was Zipporah, this would add to the argument that Ruel's family line was able to marry whomever they pleased since his child was also called an Ethiopian. I think it makes sense because it, it makes sense that the Kenites were Ethiopians, but because uh, there is a, an alternative theory that says that uh, Canaan uh, starts in Ethiopia, that the Canaanites were most uh, most most of the Canaanites lived in Ethiopia, in fact. But that's another theory because that has to do with joining East Africa with the uh, uh, the Mediterranean Middle East as uh, a more unified piece of land. But anyway, it's, that's another another thing. I talk about that I think in my second season, first first season, I think first season. Anyway. <laughs> Back to this. In addition, it is interesting that Moses was permitted to marry Zipporah, who was raised by a pagan priest. However, the text does not explain Zipporah's spiritual state. In fact, up until the point before God called Moses, we are not entirely sure of Moses' spiritual condition. Raised as an Egyptian, it is unclear where Moses stood regarding the God of Abraham. He identified with the Hebrews since he killed a guard who was beating a fellow Hebrew, but we do not know if he followed the God of Abraham exclusively at that time in his life. Even after fleeing Egypt, he may have still held to some Egyptian beliefs. That's a good point. On the other hand, Moses could could have been a true believer at that point, and Zipporah may have been more open to the idea of the one true God than her father was. This would explain why they were permitted to marry without any consequence from God. However, the Bible does not tell us this. Obviously, Moses' options in regard to whom he could marry were limited since the Israelites were still enslaved back in Egypt. 
This may have been, may have, this may have added to the reason God permitted Moses to marry Zipporah. Interestingly, Aaron and his wife, Miriam, complained about Moses' marriage to the Ethiopian woman who may have been Zipporah or a completely different woman. Who may have been Zipporah or a completely different woman. The fact that God punished Miriam for her complaint demonstrates how God supported Moses' marriage to someone of another people group. As we have seen, some supporters tried to get around the fact that Ruel was a Kenite by claiming that Moses' father-in-law was only a Midianite. Therefore, to them, he could not have been a Kenite. No dispute exists over whether Moses' father-in-law was a Midianite. However, he was also a Kenite. Again, the Midianites' genealogical information is found in Genesis chapter 25, verses 1-2, where the text informs us that the Midianites were the descendants of Abraham and Keturah. In, in Numbers chapter 10, 20, verse 29, Moses' father-in-law is described as a descendant of this tribe. In reading these verses, we cannot ignore the other verse in the Bible which tells us Moses' father-in-law was a Kenite. Judges 1, chapter 1, verse 16 provides this information provides this information in adding this information together we must conclude that Moses' father-in-law was both a Kenite and a Midianite. Supporters' ideology and motivations are apparent when they attempt to revise the word of God by claiming that Ruel was not a Kenite. It is their way of explaining away a problem they've created. The difficulty is if the Kenites were from Satan then God would not have allowed Moses to marry one. The most straightforward explanation for this is that the Kenites were not of Satan. However, those who hold to the Kenite myth cannot accept this answer. They are imprisoned by their fables. They must alter the biblical text to find a way out of the ideological jam their tales have formed. Interestingly, supporters do not extend this amended view to Moses' in-laws being from the region of the Kenites to other Kenites, where this view would hinder their claims. Okay, I'll pick it up next time in the next section, the Kenites throughout the biblical text. And I just want to say again, I can't emphasize this enough, when you read the Bible, you have to know when you're reading poetry or when you're reading prophecy or when you're reading um, something that is a, it's a metaphor or an allegory or a proverb or a parable. You know, in, in order to understand the proper context of what you're reading, You have to rightly divide and dissect the Word of God um, and not just make it into what is convenient, you know? It, it's like, okay, let's take, for example, a psalm. A psalm, some, some of the psalms are written by David, and some of them are written to be music. They're written as a song. So you have to realize and try to put yourself in David's shoes. When you're reading a psalm and David's crying out to God how um, he's, he's petitioning God to save him from his enemies and uh, he's, he's proclaiming that God is glorious because he is um, giving David uh, power over his enemies. It's, uh, it's a, and, and it says it's a song. It's meant to be sung. It's a song. It's meant to be sung. So you should look at it as music. You should look at it as a, as a song. 
Okay? But when when Solomon writes a proverb, it's a piece of uh, proverbial wisdom. So you should look at it as uh, kind of a, a a proverb. It's it's a, it's meant to be taken as like something that helps you um, in certain in certain times that you can use the certain proverb that you could apply it in some way. It's a it's a it's a wisdom that is uh, applicable. And, but it's not applicable in every situation, but it's applicable in specific situations. In certain situations, it's meant to give you like an idea of how um, to, to view things. To, and so when Paul writes a letter to a specific group of people, he's writing a letter and he's, he's giving instructions. It's not a proverb when he's giving instructions. He's, he's giving the people instructions on how to live. Right? So a proverb gives you a principle that you could use at times. And instructions are instructions that are meant to be taken literally to, to be applied in the life of a Christian. Like, um, so it's meant to be in a different kind of a way guiding. It's a, a different kind of a guidance or counsel. It's different, two different kinds of counsel, but they're both applicable to to um, being obedient to God, and one is uh, pro of her proverbial wisdom uh, that you could apply at times when it, it it is becomes applicable, and the other one is a command or instruction, and the same thing like when Jesus talks in a parable, uh, he doesn't make it obvious sometimes what he means, and you have to kind of understand. Maybe um, certain kind of an idiom or saying or 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 uh, just kind of a uh, you know you have to do some digging in 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 the in uh, the Hebraism or the common language of his day uh, to to know exactly what he was talking about. But maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe it's just a proverb, and he explains it later on. Maybe he gives a proverb, and you think about it and goes like, oh well. Um, it says in this one place, it says every tree is known by its fruit. So whether or not it has bad fruit, no fruit or good fruit, you can know that the tree is a good tree or a bad tree or useless tree. So it's talking about like he, there he is talking about people. He's not talking about trees. He's not talking about having an orchard. And, and picking good fruit, he's talking about people who are true believers and live in the Spirit produce good spiritual fruit, that they are righteous, and that other people that produce bad fruit, they're evil, and that other people that produce no fruit, they're just lazy and useless. You, they don't, they're like good for nothing, basically. It's just like you have to interpret it correctly. The scripture says rightly divide the scripture. You have to, all of it is useful, but you have to take things within context and within the, the certain kind of uh, literary writing, the certain kind of writing that it is. So you interpret the book as it is written, basically. We interpret the Bible as it is written, not just uh, making up stories and fables like myths, like uh, Cain was a son of Satan, because it has no. It's not anywhere in the in the scripture that it indicates or implies. There is no implication that we should interpret that that way. And we obviously make up fables and superstitions that way, and we don't want to do that, you know, uh, because that's called that gets into false teaching and if uh, we've, we're falsely teaching falsely prophesying we become false prophets and all those who teach falsely uh, they're you know they're sure to um, to lead themselves and lead others into a path of destruction and eternal hell uh, so Jesus, warns us about that and wants us that 
He wants all of us to have faith and wants us to survive and doesn't want us to perish in hell. He does not. He, he, he tells us about hell so that we can be warned and avoid it and come to him and, um, and inherit eternal life so that we, we, we can avoid hell. So Jesus is, uh, he, he, he says he's, a, he's the great physician. He's the, the number one physician, the number one top doctor that we could have. And he saves our soul by healing us and by making us whole and by bringing us into abundant life and saving us from uh, an otherwise uh, life of suffering and agony and an eternity our, and our souls, ultimately our souls, from an eternity in, in agony, in agony and pain, separated from God forever. So he, he wants us, he calls us, to, he invites us to, to come to him and to know God's love and to know God loves us and that we can love God and we can love each other, you know. And, but that is no um, simple feat. It is, it is quite, uh, the Lord says, my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. And he takes it upon himself. But uh, he takes the relationship upon himself to be faithful and to make us faithful. So if we are being faithful, then um, he makes it easy. He makes it easy to believe. Because it's by his grace. And his grace abounds. Where sin abounds, his grace abounds even more. So he makes it he makes it simple for us, and he makes it easy for us, so um, that we can come to him in joy and uh, and being blessed, you know, very blessed, and feeling blessed, and knowing that we're blessed. So. Uh, He's not, he doesn't do anything in a confusing way, or he doesn't make things very difficult, but he does challenge us. He challenges us sometimes to, he allows for us to be tested so that our faith can grow and so that our faith can increase um, so that we can become stronger in faith. So, so we are challenged in life. Definitely we are challenged in life. Um... But God does not confuse things. He doesn't make us confused. He doesn't make it complicated. He doesn't make it, oh, well, this and that and like, like the other thing. You know, he, he, he writes his word, the way his word can be interpreted is very straightforward. We can read it. We can read the Bible and take it as it is at face value. So, for example, um, I can open the Bible right now. I can open the Bible right now. And let's say I open to random Isaiah. It's a book of prophecy, Isaiah. And, and this is chapter 42, the Lord's chosen servant. So the title reads, the Lord's chosen servant. So I know that it, it the, the chapter is going to talk about God's chosen servant. And verse 1 says, Look at my servant whom I strengthen. Look at my servant whom I strengthen. The I is God talking. And God is asking us to observe his servant. And he's saying that... He strengthens his servant. So that is the way it is written, and that is the way I should understand it. And he continues in, in verse. Uh, he continues in verse one. He says, "He is my chosen one, who pleases me. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations." It is very, very literally. 
God is saying he, meaning uh, the servant, is God's chosen one. And he pleases God. I have God saying, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. Literally meaning he is going to bring justice to the nations. It doesn't mean that like he's going to stay in his um, in his town and uh, bring justice to uh, his friends. And he has friends that are from many different nations. And so he's going to bring justice to his friends that are from many different nations. And in that way... Um, he could, he could bring justice to the nations. So now, that is reading into it and making a story, making a fable and a story up, and making a myth up about something that's very straightforward and written very literally. No, God says his servant will bring justice to the nations. That's it. That's it. You know? Uh, and I can, I can open up in the New Testament and read... From 1 John, 1 John, uh, 1 John, the title is Living in the Light. So it's going to talk about living in the light. So it's going to tell me what it means to live in the light. 1 John, chapter 1, verses 5. This is the message we heard from Jesus. And now declare to you, God is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. Okay. So, the book of 1 John. It doesn't say here in this version... But if I go to my study Bible, most Bibles are not study Bibles. And I recommend that you get a study Bible if you're interested in really digging into uh, uh, the, the Bible and Scripture. First John, I can read in my study Bible. Okay. The author is John, son of Zebedee, the apostle... And the author of the Gospel of John and Revelation. Okay. Um, the recipients. First John make it, makes it clear that this letter was addressed to believers. So now we know that this letter of First John is addressed to those who believe. But the letter itself does not indicate who they were or where they lived. The fact that it mentions no one by name suggests it was a circular letter sent to Christians in a number of places. Evidence from early Christian writers places the Apostle John in Ephesus at the time, during most of his later years, uh, circa A.D. 70 through A.D. 100, as the first, first century. The earliest confirmed use of 1 John was in the province of Asia in modern-day modern Turkey, where Ephesus was located. Clement of Alexandria indicates that John ministered in the various churches scattered throughout that province. It may be assumed, therefore, that 1 John was sent to the churches of the Roman province of Asia. Okay? So, in the study Bible, you, uh, you get a uh, more in-depth about what you're reading and, and, and who originally would have received these letters. Okay, so the, I'm going to read this, the second part. The last time I talked, uh, last episode, I talked a little bit about Gnosticism, and interestingly enough... In this study Bible, the next section says Gnosticism. Gnosticism. One of the most dangerous heresies of the first two centuries of the church was Gnosticism. Its central teaching was that spirit 
is entirely good and matter is entirely evil. From this unbiblical, unbiblical dualism flowed five important errors. Man's body, which is matter, is therefore evil. It is to be contrasted with God, who is Holy Spirit, W-H-O-L-L-Y, uh, Holy Spirit, and therefore good. Number two, salvation is the escape from the body, achieved not by faith in Christ, but by special knowledge. The Greek word for knowledge is gnosis, hence Gnosticism. Christ's true humanity, number three, Christ's true humanity was denied in two ways. Some said that Christ only seemed to have a body, a view called docetism, from the Greek dokeo, or docetism, docetism, dokeo, to seem, quote-unquote, to seem. And two, others said that the divine Christ joined the man Jesus at baptism and left him before he died, a view called Serinthianism. 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 After its most prominent spokes spokesman, Serinthus, this view is the background of much of First John. Since the body was considered evil, number four, since the body was considered evil, it was to be treated harshly. This ascetic form of Gnosticism is the background of part of the letter to the Colossians. Number five, paradoxically, this dualism also led to licentiousness. The reasoning was that since matter and not the breaking of God's law was considered evil breaking his law was of no moral con was of no moral consequence <laughs> so the gnosticism addressed in the new testament was an early form of the heresy not the int the intricately developed system of the 2nd and 3rd centuries in addition to that scene in Colossians and in John's letters, acquaintance with early Gnosticism is reflected in 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, and 2 and 2 Peter, and perhaps 1 Corinthians. Okay, so now we know that John the Apostle was dealing with Gnostics. And so he goes on, to say, living in the light. This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you, God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. And so somebody who is twisting John's words might say that light is God. In other words, light is God. And as we know in scripture it says, Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light. And so, therefore, Satan, since he can, he can make himself an angel of light, he can play with light, so therefore Satan must be of God. And, you know, so that's not, that's, that's totally a story that is made up by twisting the words in the scripture. Light is not God, but God, it says God is light. God is light, but light is not God. So I don't believe when I put on the light in my room that um, I'm turning God on. <laughs> hey, God, I'm look, I look at the light bulb in my ceiling and say, hi, God, how are you, how are you today? No, and nor do I believe that John is saying God is the light in my light bulb, in my in the electricity in my light bulb that makes that light. That that that, that uh, therefore I can say God is that light. Oh hi God, hi. No, John is talking about a specific thing 
that God is light. In order to know what he's talking about, you have to read the whole chapter. You have to read the whole letter. You have to read and know the background to the reasoning of that he wrote the letter in the first place. And what is he actually talking about? And if you go into the Greek words, and you, you can go into the Greek words, you can know a little bit more about that light. So you have to read that. It says, in him is, is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. Oh, so now it gets a little bit more clear. John is talking about spiritual light. About spiritual light. Not the light in the light bulb, but he's talking about spiritual light. Okay, we are not practicing the truth. Oh, so now it gets a little bit more clear. So that spiritual light is the truth. Oh, that spiritual light is the truth. Meaning that God in him is no lie at all. There, is, there are no lies in God. God cannot lie. God does not lie. In, in God, there are no lies. God is the light. The light of what? Spiritual light? The spiritual light of what? The spiritual light of truth. So we have to read on to know what John is talking about. Put, taking a little tiny little verse and say, oh, making up a story about it and uh, running, into, uh, running into trouble because we make up mythologies. Um, and if we do that, we cannot be saved because we don't give Jesus a chance to truly save us from our own sin. And our sin makes us make mistakes. Our sin makes us, uh, uh, um, you know, our sin makes us subject to folly. So we don't want to be subject to folly. We want to be subject to Christ. We want to be, we want to surrender to Christ and not, and not surrender to sin so that we are not, we, we, we can grow spiritually and not uh, destroy ourselves. Okay. Anyway, I'm going to leave you with a little bit of this music. And God bless you guys. Good night. Thank you for listening. And we'll pick up again in, uh, on the next, in the next episode, the Kenites throughout the biblical text. God bless you guys. Bye.